Hi, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. What's going on in the Norways? In the Norways, um, things are going. It's well, it's kind of a gloomy day here. It's been we had a beautiful week last week. Does it we, does it yeah. feel mythical? Uh, well, I went to an ice bar as a tour, like a tourist attraction. Place <laughs> this week. They have but, one of those in New York too. Uh, like where the temperature is minus five, someone thought it would be funny that we do that, like do a touristy thing in Norway. And I, like, I didn't want to pay full price because it was ridiculous, and I was shell shocked by the conversion rate. I finally got a credit card. What, what was, was like, the price? It was like, it was like thirty dollars Canadian for one drink. So I was like, get a student <laughs> discount that was half the price, like fifteen. And what, do you have to pay an entrance fee? Yeah, and then you get one drink. But if you're a student, it's half the price. So I, I, I put in. So my you have to pay code. to be in a cold place. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. And then there's like all the ice, there's ice sculptures and they're like, there's fresh art in there. It's like freshly sculpted. <laughs> there's all these Edward Monk ice sculptures and like paintings in the ice of like the scream. <laughs> so bad. But I wore a, I wore a Viking helmet because that's what you get. If oh, you get that was a good photo. I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> if you get a studio. I was deal. like, okay, Jeremy's in Norway. Okay. Yeah. So I feel more legendary now that I've done that. Proof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Physical evidence. And I spent some time out in the fjords and like, uh, yeah, so uh, I definitely, I'm totally embedded in Norwegian culture. I, and is it, well, I, I, I'm fascinated by Norway for many reasons, but it also seems like the next country that's not too touristy yet because Iceland is so touristy. Mm. Well, actually, there's a lot of cruise ships uh, here. So there are like, you know, in the if you go down to the harbor, there are... Mm-hmm. Um, there's always like a princess cruise and these like cruise ships are, are crazy now are these cruise ships where are the tourists from I haven't talked to any I don't know yeah they're I, I hear a lot of American voices around they'll say that like yeah. less British that's voices. a really American way of traveling the, the cruise ship mm. I think it's one of the beautiful if I was going to take a cruise I think that would be the one because you go up through the fjords and it's otherwise really hard to see the Norwegian fjords um, like a cruise all ship just seems like a, a, a a tryout for a retirement home. Yeah, I mean, and these cruise ships now, they have, it's so funny, like, they have these huge, you can see from the port, like, these huge screens, like, sports-sized, like, jumbotrons <laughs> on top. And they're, like, it showing... so awful. It's weird, like, they're showing scenes of nature sometimes. Yesterday, I noticed that someone was playing, like, a game. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but it's, like, it's, like, yeah, they just seem like, you're right, like, these big, it's almost like Las Vegas floating. And they're bigger than all of the buildings. There's no, bu- there's no like building it- bigger than them. It also feels like an extension of the airport. So you you go in an Uber, which is this uh, little container that's already contained mm. by the app, and so it's a safe environment. Then you yeah. go in the airport by the TSA and the check, and everything's compartmentalized. Then you go yeah. in the airplane, and there's a security, and there's the, the, the airport food and the little compartments, and then you go in the boat, and you have your own little compartment, <laughs> and uh, yeah. It reminds me, though, uh, you just reminded me, like, maybe this is a segue into this week's topic, that, like, in the, you know, it's we a very... Sh- we should have a little jingle whenever there's a segue. It should go, <laughs> jingle. segue, topic. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, the movie... This Wall- week. <laughs> in the movie Wally, like, remember, they, like, yeah, go on exactly. a, cru- they go on a yeah. cruise and they never come back, right? It's a space yeah. cruise ship, but, um, like, why would you ever come back from the cruise if all your needs are taken care of, kind of thing? That that was always in Wally. The the people become so soft that the, their bones kind of shrink. Isn't yeah, they're it? Like, they're very plump and like yeah. yeah but that was that when I made strength. that. I, I don't think a lot of people thought of that. But I made that website Jello Time. 
mm-hmm. which a lot of people like. But to me, that was the the representation of the internet body. But nobody ever got that, so I'm, I'm just dropping that right now. That was because the type of jello that you showed is only common in like northeastern Europe, like <laughs> like that kind of. I guess it was popular in the '50s in the United States, but since being back in Norway, they mm-hmm. I've been given this thing called they call it um, what do they call it jamboree? No, what is it called? It has a funny name like celebration or something, and it's like seafood in a gelatin, just like oh, yeah. that. Like they still yeah. sculpt food into gelatin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very fifties thing. They go, oh, we have this technology; we can make food any shape. <laughs> but you wanted to talk about uh, science fiction, right? Yeah. Why do you want to not? talk about that? Well, yeah. Well, why? No, I, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is that the last maybe five years I started reading more, mm. and I've been really enjoying these leaps of imagination when, which I don't get from movies, and then. I get that most out of science fiction, where someone just has a premise, say, what if, and then just a completely bonkers idea, and then see where the story goes, or what the world would look like. Mm-hmm. It's it, just a really big what if, what if, yeah. Yeah, but aren't a, lot of, aren't a lot of movies sort of based on, on these classic yeah, but, uh, yeah, science fiction? I, I, think, I think movies are really fun, and they're very relaxing, so when you're tired at the end of the day, and mm-hmm. But they don't stimulate your brain in the same way where, uh, I don't know, if they, it, it, I'm not saying movies or literature are on mm-hmm. a higher plateau, or, yeah. but for me, when I read, my imagination is triggered more because you, it's someone is giving you hints, but you have to form that world. And, and that's more than if it's a, let's say it's a book about a relationship in the present in, uh, in a city that you know, mm-hmm. or if it's... If it's a science fiction book about a planet eons away and galaxies away and uh, or a strange premise about how life could be or what what a life form could be mm-hmm. yeah and more often than not like um the films take a more conservative angle anyway right yeah i i mean it, i i think it's very rare that the film is better than the book maybe minority reports like the exception it's like this it's become this like uh it's like 2001 space odyssey for yeah. a generation where it's becoming yeah. this like index film <laughs> and yeah, not yeah, that yeah. i'm a spielberg fan but did you anything. read the did you read the book no i never read the original um the original book um yeah but this week's topic is not about books per se i, I was just interested because we talk about art and technology and it seems that science fiction is a, a beautiful merger of art and technology no, 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 you're right. And like, I mean, a lot of people would argue that like most of the technology sector today is just trying to recreate Snow Crash, right? Which is a piece of science fiction literature. Which was a horrible place to be. Like, why would you <laughs> want to recreate? Yeah, I mean, there's some criticism that like uh, in the generation before, like Microsoft and Apple were all, they were all just trying to recreate Star Trek, um, like and the science fiction literature that they read uh, when they were but they're still up. trying to. I, I think the whole Siri and Alexa and Google Home was uh, yeah. trying to recreate Star Trek. Uh, I'm always like, um, whenever I walk through like an automatic door at like a 7-Eleven or a convenience store, or like that, <laughs> I'm always like, we did it. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the dreamers were right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can live in a world with doors open. <laughs> on their own. Like that was once considered like a, a crazy sci-fi idea, but. I don't know if that yeah. was probably written about more than uh, that became a problem when you had to visualize the future, which I think is one interesting. Um, but that, but that's kind of a materialistic future. So that's, mm. that's the materialistic sense of uh, 
uh, rice that cooks itself and uh, trash that picks itself up. Mm-mm. And then and then there's concepts like a book that made a really big impression on me was Brave New World. Mm. And this idea of of uh, uh, manufacturing people instead of people being born into families. So the, right. The, the thesis was that families are very problematic. A lot of people are traumatized by their parents and their parents can be abusive. And uh, so they think, leave it to the professionals. Professionals will do a better job. And so you have an, an engineered society from the top down. It's controlled and there's different classes and people mm-hmm. are born into their class and their program. I, I, I don't know if a lot of our readers, uh, listeners probably read the book or know about the book, but uh, it's kind of about this artificial futuristic world that's kind of hedonistic mm-hmm. and there's a few people in pockets outside of that world that still live the ancient way i i don't know it's too complex of a story to quickly summarize but did you, you read should, that book when you were uh, young uh no i didn't uh, but you should mention the author so that everyone can read it uh, El- Aldous huxley I, I i figured this was a classic like it's it's almost like shakespeare like you have to read it in school or you would not mm. no in canada we read books about uh social justice or social equality. <laughs> i don't know like <laughs> like I, I i don't know i'm, I'm surprised you d- you did not read brave new world <laughs> no i was reading actually it's funny because i refer i'm uh, doing this residency and i was re- i'm referring readings to everyone and i I referred uh, this reading called The Jungle. I think I've talked about it before, Upton Sinclair, um, as like a book, a good book to read about like uh, how, uh, it, but it's set in the past, but it's really science fiction or science, maybe it's not science fiction, but it's like, it's fiction about the present in order, but it's like exaggerated to make a political point. Yeah. And then as I was looking it up, I read that it was like assigned as a high school reading in the United States, but it was never assigned to me. Um, mm. And it's a very socialist. Kind of, it's set in the Chicago stockyards. It was it was meant for like. When was it written? At the turn of the century, like to because labor conditions um, turn of the last century, not this not obviously in the two thousands, but labor conditions were so bad in the Chicago stockyards, and it was all immigrant labor, and people were dying, and like. But what was funny is that as I was reading about it, I was like going back to this book, and they were saying like what changed, like the author had intended for this to like shake up labor politics in America. You know, that mm-hmm. for people to to be like shocked and say like, oh my God, you know, the immigrants need you know fair wages, working conditions should be better. But instead, the public just got upset that the quality of meat uh, was probably full of human flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and in America, it changed like the standards uh, for food safety, uh, just funny. like for the safety of the consumer, not of, of the producer. The, yeah, the artist intentions can go when you ha- when you make a book with a political agenda and a and a intention to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver Stone made that movie Wall Street in the 80s oh right he, there was the famous character Gordon Gecko, the, the greedy stockbroker trader person uh, who, who has a famous speech and he says greed is good and he thought okay I'm gonna make the worst Wall Street guy so everybody's like Wall Street is terrible but then he inspired an entire generation of people like I wanna be Gordon Gecko. <laughs> I wanna be greedier than anybody else <laughs> right yeah, so yeah, it's, it's like it's bo- funny how the, that goes. The Borat problem kind of thing. Comedians often get themselves into this place where they satirize <laughs> uh, the world, and then people are like, "Oh yeah, vagine," and you're like, "No, don't <laughs> not only is it racist, it's also misogynist." Yeah, but, it, but a lot of that early science fiction was like, um, 
was was also like sort of propagating present day ideals, right? Like, you know, coming yeah. out of modernism, like there were these ideas for utopias. Like the the future was building, being built right before our eyes. There and were these the, world yeah. fairs. And then there's um, there was the restriction of of art and the press in the communist Eastern Europe and Russia, mm-hmm. right? And so they used science fiction as a sort of play. someone told me I'm I'm really not that well researched but someone told me philosophy was uh, forbidden or radical philosophy and then that a lot of people who would have been philosophers in the west became sci-fi writers in the east who would just take ideas like propositions for mm. forms of society and they would uh, they would say it's on mars with l- weird creatures but it was actually just a proposition of what the world could be here like Isomov or something like that like but were like well, were they were they trying to like I'm just thinking of Russian writers. Uh, I, I'm just thinking of Stanislav writers. Lem, who mm. wrote Solaris. Oh right, uh, and they're about to make Solaris a, into a movie, or did they already make it into a movie? Was it? There, there was a movie. There were two movies made. One by a, a Russian director, mm-hmm. uh, which was a bit more artsy, and then there was a Hollywood version. And he disliked both of them because they were about the relationship part. But the the actual book is much more about. Uh, Science and and an ideas about mm-hmm. what a very strange life form could be. It is yeah. It's funny. There are, like if we verge into the popular for just a second, like in cinema, there's like every once in a while they'll try and there's a, a grand gesture to make like a sci-fi movie um, that everyone will like. And then there's this other one where they just take like they're like that book. A lot of people like, yeah, that's an important book. Like let's just tease out a relationship, you know, make it a, a sex sexy sort of star drama. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and they kind of space rom com. They blow past all the philosophy. They're like, nah, audiences won't understand that. Yeah, exactly. A space rom com. I, I, I mean that, that that is an interesting part about making movies and whether you think movies or um, a lot of people of course watch more movies than read books, including me. So movies are definitely easier to digest. I mean, I read a lot of books, but the type of book I read is typically nonfiction or like yeah. um, theory that's speculating on a near future. Like, oh, yeah, we, yeah. what if we did the everything in the world this way? Which is kind of something I wanted to talk about today, too, because like, um, you know, I, I work as a designer and in design a lot of, you know, for, for most of history, design was like looking backwards. So it'd be like, observe the world, right? Um, like, look for a problem. And then try and solve that problem, and it, it reaches present day in that like the solution meets yesterday's problem, right? And as well, soon as the solution I think comes it's, out, it, it's interesting the speculative design thing that it actually ah, addresses that's the going. problem. You're, steal- you're stealing my thunder. yeah, but the the interesting problem is that it's they're saying they're addressing problems, but the actual problem they're addressing is that their clients are too restrictive and they want to be artists. (laughs) Yeah, so I was about to propose that, like, uh, like I shared a reading with the group here uh, today uh, from Speculative Everything, which is um, Fiona Rabbi and Anthony Dune's book, which kind of launched the speculative design revolution. But the speculative design proposes, like, hey, we don't solve problems, you know, to solve the really big problems, the social problems and stuff, they actually think much more like a science fiction writer. Um, But they don't go, they, they, they have this thing that they distinguish between uh, fantasy and potential reality or what they call the probable 
um, which I think is interesting to think about in relationship with science fiction and writing. How does it is, relate to fantasy sports, like fantasy baseball? Well, when they say fantasy, they're saying like orcs, magic, goblins, the things that are impossible that just are con- you know conjured from the imagination versus the things that are probable or even possible if we just you know verge away from what is likely. Um, so like most of the time, we're designing for what we think is reasonable, but speculative designers, you know, when they're you know, trying to make a critical or take a critical position or make social progress or saying like, well, you know, yes, we live in a capitalist and it's really kind of usually about capitalism, I think. Yes, we live in this capitalist kind of heteronormative, heterogeneous world. But like, what if we just like went 30 degrees to the left and, mm. you know, my, let, let's let's take one of those variables, like let's take money and say like that doesn't exist. How does that change all the rules? And then what yeah. do we need mm-hmm. to design to solve the problems that might arise? Well, I, I really like science fiction, not when it goes 10 degrees or 12 degrees, but when it goes a million degrees f- far off. So you want like flying dragons in space or something? With Yeah, like, <laughs> well, Dune is a good example. That's exactly what it is. It, yeah. It's sandworms. And, but uh, Dune is a nice example. It's still quite political, but it's, it, it's a human godlike creature that lives 5,000 years and just sees generations of people and sees all their faults and all their... It, it, it's just a very macro view. It's not like, hey, what if we made traffic signs another color? Would we be better off? Well, I'm not hey, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> I'm saying like, <laughs> hey, what if we lived in a post-capitalist world? Like, what would that look like? Yeah. What, you know, I, I think like um, people might be familiar well, with... Well, go, go uh, to France. That's a post-capitalist world. <laughs> I'm in Norway. It's pretty pretty far, far left. Yeah. Um, but I think like we're, we're probably familiar with... Um, these concepts in 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 popular sci-fi now like there's that black mirror show and i think you know it's like the twilight zone right like take the regular mm-hmm. world and then change one rule or or extrapolate yeah. one thing though it's very dystopic yeah um, but I would maybe prefer- maybe this is really the thing where books can go further like because mm. um that book solaris did did you read it yeah 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 so i it, the book is about it a, a a planet very far away that humans are trying to understand and the entire planet is one living being and the mm-hmm. humans are trying to communicate with the planet through uh, sonar shocks or through mm-hmm. electric current uh, morse code anything but it's basically imagine you're the size of a bacteria and you're trying to communicate with an elephant yeah um, so I, I like <clears throat> that kind of stuff where it's just it, it it's not like it, that was the point of Stanislav Lem. He said that a lot of sci-fi was like, oh, it's like humans, but they have antennas on their heads, so they're aliens. Right. But he, he, I'm just fascinated when I read his books, and it's just like he takes it so far. I could have never come up with it. And and you 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 get to a point you're reading it, and you're like you start to accept that world, and then he goes leaps further. Right. I mean, like, um, but here, I mean, there's yeah, I mean that. One question I have for you, I guess it's just a question, which is maybe that's escapism. Maybe that's what I like about it. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you like whether it seems like quite a lot of science fiction, especially that early science fiction. Well, no, no, I think it, it's like an, a trend line that's increasing, but it's always toward the, a dystopian future. Like all trend lines lead to, you know, not like if we did make it outer space and if we did communicate with another species, of course, we wouldn't understand them. Da, da, da. The human is always like shown to be small, like, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. trying to take on way more than it could possibly ever understand. But I'm always cu- I'm curious, like you probably read more sci fi than me. But are th- is there any sci fi where the human like 
does something good and is rewarded, <laughs> the world becomes well, a better I, I place. I think Brave New World is is uh, was kind of written as a dystopia, but at the same time, it is the world we want. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's a very hedonistic world where. Uh, you're not allowed to have long-term relationships. You have to have sex with as many different people as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to take drugs, and the drugs don't give you a hangover. It's it's they they've synthesized something perfect. You have to change your clothes all the time, uh, non-attachment and and consumerist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go see movie experiences that are very ephemeral and surface-like and dreamy. So you don't have any too deep or serious critical thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so it was written as a dystopia, but at the same time, it seems like, well, that's kind of awesome. Well, I always think is the reason they're all like dystopias is because, you know, for there to be, you know, it's like one of the rules of storytelling that there needs to be conflict, right? Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, yeah. protagonist is like the stupid human. And then the antagonist is like also the human, like some other part yeah. of the human that can't like can't help but like mess things up. Um, and we always well, there's, end, like, the, the, there's also an, a, a promise of the good ending so you need that struggle and then you need to yeah, overcome exactly. something yeah overcome the struggle but I, I don't know maybe it would just be a boring film it's funny because like one of the artists here is working on like um, a marketing campaign for post-capitalism but then they decided like to get the, the campaign out they're going to modify Monopoly you know the game Monopoly yeah of course you do. <laughs> Everyone does. But originally, Monopoly was supposed to be like. <laughs> tell this, me about uh, it. No, no. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was supposed to be a game to help um, people understand socialism, uh, like the evils of capitalism, basically. So it was like. Yeah, this the the outcome is always negative. Yeah, exactly. That the, there's no way to win at Monopoly was the original premise of the game. It was going to like show you the evils of uh, of, of playing this of of you regular destroy capitalism. other people's lives and you're stuck alone. And it does explain why, like, as a child, I had many fights playing Monopoly, uh, like throwing the <laughs> dice, my sister still tells. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so then, but then, of course, there's a story of how Hasbro, like, stole the game and, like, made it about glamorizing Monopoly. And we talked about that just a few moments ago, but, like, uh, he he was saying, like, well, what if we changed the, the Monopoly game, or these artists were saying they're working on this, to be, like, post-capitalist, and, in fact, all there is is there's a redistribution of wealth. Well, then the game would become, like, really boring potentially <laughs> yeah and well that, that, that's i think that's a good example of how the netherlands uh are a lot more boring politics are a lot less entertaining because things are more reasonable mm. but then, like, i don't know if this is the same in canada where things elections are quite boring because a lot of people are just making sense but it sort of like leads me to believe that like we're doomed for you know we're always going to have Trump in office or this or that like disaster and we're we're like secretly pretending like we don't actually enjoy that as entertainment um, and the alternatives which would be reasonable like progress toward a goal that helps everyone we're not going to we're going not going to be able to help ourselves but to mess it up because like we're looking. No, for I, I don't agree. I I, I think uh, there's been. Well, we were trying to keep this podcast not too political, but I think there's been 40 years of really boring politics in Europe that mm. worked really well. So mm. it, the funny thing is, is that I decided to leave. So you, you grow up there and everything's kind of makes sense. Everything's mm. quite reasonable. And they're like, oh, let's go to this other country where everyone's on drugs and everything is right. retarded. And, yeah. Like no one's writing stories about Europe becoming uh, a terrible like you know place like no one's saying there's no there's no is there's no european writing or correct me if i'm wrong when you're growing up in school where they're like imagine a world in which we take everything that we've built together and we throw it away well <laughs> no th- no there is there is this 
I think there's this uh, European spirit of. Um, there's actually a Norwegian guy from, from. There's a documentary about black metal, and he says, the the the, the sort of pain of Scandinavia or the darkness and the suicidal mm. themes come from when everything makes sense and everything's arranged, that every part of life is fair and everybody's safe, and mm-hmm. you still feel like shit, and you realize it's you. Mm. It's not the government putting you down. It's not that you're broke. It's not that you're sick. It's just you're just a piece of shit. Yeah. So that's mm. the. I think there's a there's an author called Michel Wiebeck, a French mm-hmm. author. Oh yeah, yeah. Who writes a lot about the deterioration of Europe and a sort of suicidal mode, like a hedonistic end end game of society where it's just about pleasure. Uh, people don't have children. They just live a life of empty uh, chasing of, of thrills. Hmm. It's funny you say that because like the the big kind of trend in Norway or like one of their exports right now, like their cultural exports is this like, it's this word that I, I can't remember what it is, but it's like, it's, it's like comfy or like warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And it's this like ability to create a space in which we feel like warmth and support. <laughs> well, they uh, need that with the weather. Yeah. 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 But they're like, it, they're, it's like kind of a cultural export. Someone was telling me across Europe now, like if you look at the cover of like Monocle next week or like. So it's, it's like a wooden interior with felt and a fireplace and things like yeah, that. Yeah. I wish I could remember the words like kuge or something like that. Like that's yeah. It is. yeah in, in, in Dutch you have gezellig, but that's more social than physical environment. Mm hmm. I mean, it doesn't sound very exciting, though, does it? It's like, you know. It's, well, that's. I, I think I spoke like about going that into outer space. quite often that there's <laughs> there's are things you can't really measure, but that mm-hmm. are actually extremely important. And money is something that's easy to measure, uh, and actually quite at a certain level. Not, mm-hmm. We're going very far off topic. Well, I was going to bring it back on topic by saying like that's very inward looking, right? Like the Norwegian, the Norwegian space, and this is what I've experienced with the art scene here too. Is very much like let's look around, let's look, let's come together, let's look at each other. But yeah. like in America, and you know, when you think of science fiction, um, and not just American writers, I guess you're you're right to say like also Russian and potentially in the future it'll be Chinese. But there's this like because we've messed things up locally or there's this freedom there this this every sort of person for themselves it's more about expansion right it's about it's like colonial it's like take over another part of the world but then once we've messed up this world let's get into outer space and there's nothing <laughs> braver or That's more my, I, 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 that brings me to james cameron it's so mm. funny that it th- there's a funny contradiction where Americans are so entrepreneurial and brand oriented that's so deep in the culture mm-hmm. that they can't help it. Even if they're activists, they'll create a brand out of it. So James Car- Cameron is an environmental activist and they, he created Avatar. It, it, all his movies have a strong message. So he, he made Terminator 2 with this mm-hmm. idea that if AI was developed for weapons and it starts to become autonomous, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And then Avatar is this idea of there are native cultures out there, but we're draining their environment of the resources and and destroying them. Mm-hmm. But then he just opened a theme park, a right? ride in, in in a theme park, and it's all like so many gift shops. Everything is so materialistic <laughs> and and made of plastic, and it, it's just yeah, funny. Yeah, that is funny. Just, like, you what? can't escape it. It's like why it's making he- it. Why didn't he just yeah. buy like a swatch of rainforest and say like that's why I made? He the also movie. did that. There's photos of him marching with the Native Americans in South America, 
he's really he's also an extreme deep sea diver and I think he's very genuinely mm. active environmentalist but at the same time it still is this behemoth enterprise and with a lot of physical uh, crap mm. yeah I it, it, that's just a funny contradiction it's like let's tell the world about uh, environmental problems through making more crap yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't, yeah, I mean, you know, he has to fund, I guess, five more versions of that movie or something. Aren't there like five sequels planned for Avatar? Like it's yeah, the next knows, Star Wars. Yeah. They're taking a I really think, long time to make. He, the first one yeah, took 10 years. Yeah, but I years. think he gets bored after a while and then moves on to another franchise. But it took so him 10 then, years to do the first one. And also, where does yeah. Titanic fit into that? <laughs> I never understood why he also made Titanic, but. Uh, Zizek had a very funny analysis of, of Titanic. What did he where, say? Well, there's this. There's the upper class girl, uh, Clara Danes, is it? Yeah. And then yeah, yeah, there's yeah. The, the 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 lower class bohemian uh, Leonardo yeah, DiCaprio, yeah. kind of an artist, and he he's very alive. And so the Clara Danes is really bored with her upper class life. It's very stiff. Mm-hmm. So she plays around. She dances with the poor people at the bottom of the ship and has fun. And then the ship crashes, and the rich people get rescued. And she decides to let Leo drown. She could have easily held on to him. There was enough space on the... But she's like, no, I, I had my taste of the lower class life. I had fun for a week. Goodbye. I'm going back to my regular life. <laughs> yeah, I guess... Uh, well, yeah, maybe that's why he did it. Because he's actually... Let's pretend for a second that James Cameron is a socially conscious... <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I think a lot of these Hollywood movies have uh, extremely radical undercurrents that are hidden in the... Well, let's talk about some of our favorites. Um, just for a second like favorite well, sci-fi I, I, movies yeah I, I i just wanted to say that there's there's star trek and star wars and there's a kind of two different versions one is kind of a wild west uh, do or die uh, capitalist uh, everyone that, out on their own that's future. star wars i assume that's yeah that. and the other one is a communal post-money idealistic uh, mm-hmm. work together respect all life forms future yeah science and the unknown and and yeah yeah so they, they, i heard that that comes up a lot in silicon valley like are you which side of the future are you mm, really and like uber uber is a star wars future and then actually maybe they're all star wars but i don't know they, which, yeah, which one side? of them i mean yeah. both, i guess both the empire and the rebels are bad in a way right like in star wars yeah. you think about it like neither but is in really star trek good... you really think picard is a good person yeah 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 I, I mean i grew up watching star trek as a family and it was like family viewing was but it I, the original series or the next generation i watched the original but then uh, like in reruns but then together we would watch like every week voyager with janeway and you know i think yeah, that, yeah. that was really inspiring for me as it but yeah star boy. trek to me is an example of uh i I mean, I really enjoy watching it, but it's it's where cinema, especially TV shows, don't have such a crazy budget, and you can <laughs> only go so far. So aliens are always just like, oh, let's put some funny ears on them, or let's change their skin color. But I they're think still that's one humans. Of the, that is one of the funny things about Star Trek, though, in general, is it's basically like life in an office cubicle. Like the, most of the time, they're walking around beige hallways, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. sitting in it's like a floating office. They're yeah. sitting in little Best Western like hotel rooms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love the styling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the funniest is when they have to create art for other life forms. So they like if there's some scenes sometimes where they visit another planet and they go to a museum on that planet. 
Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't even know. There's almost no self-expression. It's always like contained. Like Spock will be like, yes, I love Chopin. Yeah. And then he'll play like a tune for like a yeah. second. And but, it's like... But Data, Data has a Mondrian in his room at some point in this studying it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like it's like an artifact from like, it's almost like archaeology. Art is this thing that once happened and no longer exists because mm-hmm. uh, as a collective, it makes, which we've talked about previously, it's impossible for us to make uh, art, yeah. a, you know, singular expression. That's actually yeah. interesting. I never think, thought about like Star Trek not supporting artistic practice because it's too self, self-centered. Um, but they have no collective art making. They have the holodeck. They do um, have. There's there's one funny Star Trek episode, Next Generation, where they get addicted to a game, and the game is actually a sort of virus or ploy from another. I can't remember. But you put on these goggles, and the game is really easy. You just have to move your eyeballs and put the ball in a hole and do it over and over again. <laughs> and it really reminds me of all the addictive games with in-app purchases, where everybody's <laughs> like, try this game. And, and then everybody's kind of like they're on heroin. They're uh-huh. not functioning anymore. Uh-huh. And the whole ship sort of shuts down because everybody's addicted to the game. And they're like, ah, oh, this feels good. So what is like, what is contemporary sci-fi though right now? Like this is a question, you know, so we've talked a little bit about where it's come from, some of our influences. one key movie for me is Idiocracy. Mm, Did you see it? No, what's Idiocracy? It's it's Mike Judge who made Beavis and Butthead and he made, right now he's making Silicon Valley. Not exactly a classic. uh, Yeah, I watched Silicon Valley, but... uh, And Office Space and so Idiocracy... The premise is a bit uh, problematic, but also funny. But the premise is that there's a guy working in the U.S. military, and he gets frozen as an experiment. And 500 years later, he wakes up. And it turns out that stupid people had a lot more babies than smart people. So he wakes up in the U.S., and everybody's just really dumb. Mm. Not a little bit. Everybody's just like... Uh, it's kind of like a Beavis and Butthead future. Oh, and wow, okay. They open, they open the faucet and Gatorade comes out. Nobody knows what water is anymore. Hmm. Everything's very brand. Uh, but, for example, Starbucks is a strip joint and uh, you get your law degree at Costco and uh, it's a really weird future. <laughs> it's not that <laughs> you far have to, off. It's, yeah, but the scary thing is, it's like, oh, it's actually the present. So I think a lot of times sci-fi, you're like, wow, what a future. It's like, oh, no, that's actually the world we're living in. Well, they always say that, that, that you know, sci-fi is just an exaggeration of the present in some way, right? Like, Yeah, like some- in Idiocracy, the president is an ex-porn star who constantly has two Uzis in his arms, and he's like, we're going to fix everything, and then he just shoots in the air. Mm-hmm. So you're like, hmm, that's not that far off. Yeah, of I was thinking like... You know, the science part of science fiction is where I, I you know, I, I think it's kind of fun to look at some of the recent examples in, yeah, in cinema. Yeah. Like, uh, though it was like panned. With I, Interstellar? And yeah, I was like about that. to say, like, Interstellar was like, it was kind of interesting to see uh, a movie try and take on, and even if it did a terrible job, that it tried to take on something that we didn't understand yeah, uh, collectively, yeah. like the, the science. Multidimensionality and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And people were like, it's so cheesy, it's so cheesy. I was like, well, have you tried to represent string yeah. theory recently? It's, it's funny. <laughs> in a like, narrative? I, I think someone told me they were in a car with Werner Herzog, and he's not very good at small talk. So within two minutes, the topic was like, how do we translate quantum physics into cinema? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, two I, minutes, I, like record. The shortest, yeah. fewest number of steps to quantum physics. Yeah, but... <laughs> 
It is. It, it, to me, I, I love going to the movies. And it's almost like getting a massage. It's like you don't have to think for a while. Uh, that's the way I see it. It's just fun. It's like a roller coaster ride. But the 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 type of stuff you're talking about, where you can really take weird ideas very far without mm-hmm. the constraints of a of, of a big corporation and a general audience. Mm-hmm. I've, I, it maybe it's that in in uh, first of all, you're not bound by the laws of physics when you're writing. Mm-hmm. So that's already freeing. And the, I think the other thing is that it's an expression of one person instead of a hundred people or a thousand people. Mm-hmm. What does that allow you to do, though? What are you saying? Just it, it allows you to do... It, if I think of a Stanislav Lem book, I can't remember the title, but it, they go to a distant planet and it, it's really difficult to get there. And I think it takes multiple generations. Like they have to procreate on the ship itself to get there. Mm-hmm. And so the mission is like three, four generations of humans. And they arrive there and they want to find out if this planet has living beings. And then it takes them 40 years to shoot all kinds of signals. And finally, the planet replies like, we don't want to talk to you. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it would be really hard to make a movie that ends like that, where it's like <laughs> four hours of trying something and the, and the, and the other beings are like, and they're not even angry. They're not aggressive. They're just like not interested to communicate with another species. They kind of did do that this year. There was that movie Arrival. I don't know if you saw it um, with uh, I can't remember the director now, but um, in Arrival, like this species. Ah, yeah, with yeah, Amy yeah. Adams. I didn't see it's it. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of good. They ruin it at the very end with this like schmaltzy love, love scene. Well, that's maybe like, the Hollywood thing where they have to. There's a certain type of ending that if you don't do it, the movie doesn't function. Yeah, like they spend the whole movie just trying to like understand uh, linguistically this yeah. alien species, um, yeah. and so it's about them sort of uncovering what they have to say, um, and really like well, ends I, on a kind I, of poetic I do, note. I do like when the science fiction things beyond an anthropomorphic sort of life form with with the like we usually think of aliens as a, mm. a being with either a few arms more than us but still has right. arms and legs and eyes and nose and all those things remember the previous uh you know that movie prometheus from a few years ago you know yeah. which was the extension of the alien uh franchise I love that movie. the original mm. alien series is like for me like seared into my childhood memory as like the most terrifying potential future but also just like so thrilling like so many of the things that i thought were cool after that came from the aesthetics. that's even more sort of wild west than star wars and yeah and the, but the, and, the, and the aesthetics of course were a riff off uh hr geiger right so they were like uh, would we consider like geiger to be an artist or an illustrator what do you think um uh maybe he's like 70 percent artist 30 percent <laughs> illustrator yeah. okay like it's a terrible for me to draw that distinction but anyway the aesthetics of the aliens were like out of control too right it wasn't like i mean they still well, had he designed legs the, the, it, it wasn't that they riffed off he he actually designed it for the movie right 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 yeah so it was yeah. actually that's a great example of like um yeah that's true i forgot about that collaboration between um uh you know someone that was thinking about those themes and then they explored them and but the new prometheus movie was like it got it was pretty good to start i remember thinking wow like the way they got the ai guy and everything and then it's like but then no spoilers here but like eventually when those white like like white-faced kind of the, like the sort of greek uh, statue greek looking god beings. yeah beings come along I'm like oh really like that's what we find uh on this planet <laughs> like that's nothing even like it's you took a step back from the 90s i yeah uh, i think dune is an interesting example where the, um 
many Thor. people tried to make make Dune. Mm-hmm. So Dune is a is a big epic uh, series of novels. It's such a complicated long story that it doesn't fit in one book. Mm-hmm. So the, Frank Herbert wrote six books, and then his son wrote six books after that. And I think it's a whole world. I experienced Dune for the first time as a video game when I was growing up. <laughs> oh well, there you go. So different people tried to interpret it in different media, and mm-hmm. famously David Lynch made Dune. And was very disappointed. Um, he made it, and he—I uh, think—in the end, he didn't want to put his name on the credits. So it says Alan Smithy, which is the general name in Hollywood. If someone, if a director wants to distance himself or herself from the from the movie, you say directed by Alan Smithy. So if really? you watch the credits, yeah, I never knew he that. was. He was really, and I like it in a cheesy way, but it's definitely not as interesting as the book. Mm-hmm. But after that. Uh, Jodorowsky, the director of uh, Holy Mountain and other movies, uh, El Topo, he was a kind of spaced out uh, psychedelic director from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Dune is a very psychedelic book, so I, I want to make it way crazier. The David Lynch movie kind of failed. Uh, and he got together a lot of different artists. There's a documentary about him trying to make the movie. Mm. And it failed. He... he the the Dune story takes place on different worlds and different planets. So he he wanted to have a different visual artist for each planet. So he had Geiger and he had Möbius and he he said, for example, in most uh, science fiction movies, the ships are kind of like flying refrigerators. They're just mechanical. But he had these organic spaceships mm, that are semi biological and semi-mechanical and semi-electronic mm-hmm. and so it's, it's something between a dragon and an airplane and uh, mm-hmm. uh, just thinking much further than just uh, uh, oh let's change the color of the bolts and the and let's make the the wings a little wider mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah but the the point is he, he tried to make the book and he, he uh, worked with all these different uh, visual artist and he made a 400 page book and gave that to all the studios and the studios were like no this movie is way too crazy but then they used that book as inspiration for every other movie the next 20 years oh really that's great that's crazy because you remind me that david lynch though of course was like the aj uh abrams or whatever wait what's is that who's the jj abrams jj AJ, the jj abrams of uh of of the 90s or in late 80s because he was like dealing with mystery and the unknown as themes and isn't jj abrams the king of reboots you think he's the king of reboots i think he was known early on like with lost and stuff for like embedding these mysterious like smoky kind of things like i thought he was known for reboots because he I think Star he just Wars became a popu- I think he just became a popular director so they like restarted he was really into Twilight Zone too like this idea of speculation okay. and mystery I, I never watched Lost but I always heard that Lost referenced Twin Peaks a lot and then yeah, basically now Twin Lost Peaks is, like, is kind of referencing Lost yeah that's right yeah Lost totally mm. uh, references Twin Peaks or like you know ri- you know kind of riffs off of those that those unknown the no, weirdness like, yeah the weirdness I don't know what the t- there should be a word for that in the English language like yeah. Probably there is in Eastern Europe. It's like the hukla. <laughs> like that. I don't know. What it anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, to me, it's funny. Like, I'll listen. I'll, I'll read a lot of popular blogs, and they'll really strongly um, write critiques of very commercial movies, as if mm. they're. Uh, you know how in the in the '60s, someone like Godard was a film critic first, <laughs> right, right. and then became a filmmaker. Yeah. 
And then it's funny when you see people critiquing uh, movies like Star Wars. It's almost like applying the same critique that you would apply as if to it's Proust. art cinema or something. Yeah, it's it's like you would take the same critic who would normally crit- critique mm-hmm. Proust or uh, Sartre or whatever, mm-hmm. and then take them to Disneyland and think, "What do you think of the new Avatar ride?" Right. Well, I mean, what you're pointing at is that maybe we're there's no longer any there are no sci-fi auteurs or the what we what, like because you're talking about auteurship, right? Or the auteur, yeah, yeah. right? Like, well, maybe authors. I'm talking about the singular voice. That is, yeah, that's what an auteur yeah. is, right? The definition of an auteur yeah. is like someone with a unique point of view that's do, that's like kind of got a hypothesis for the way the world could be, you know, and projects it through their expressive lens or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, like Godard's a great example, but um, yeah, David but, Lynch but is another we, example. Beck is another example. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm but, pronouncing his name wrong, but I, it, I, it's kind of sci-fi. I think the sci-fi auteur of the moment, though, you could argue that this is kind of an interesting thought for what is contemporary culture is uh, Bloomkamp or whatever, Neil Bloomkamp, the... Uh, the South African Canadian director of Chappie and District ah, yeah, yeah, Nine, yeah, yeah. and he yeah. just started his own sci-fi studio this week called Oatmeal Studios. Did you hear about that? Or I, Oat Studio? Yeah, I Oat think, Studios. I think the most amazing idea he had is to take high-end uh, special effects, but then make them look like home video. Well, what's and really that gave, yeah that gave a feeling of of realism and grittiness, and it also takes the faults of of special effects. He made a few short films before that became District 9. But just this idea to make, like, put a long time into making perfect special effects and then shoot it again on a phone. Yeah, and he has a a very uh, interesting kind of philosophy right now with this Oat Studios, which I guess he tried to pick the most boring possible name, like Oatmeal or Oat, (laughs) but he's going back to his original roots in terms of like, you know, doing short films. And so just a little bio on, on this, on this person, they used to make, uh, all kinds of, you know, he used to make, uh, he, he was just like a protege computer kid and made like little short films and effects experiments. And then like one of his effects experiments became like a short film called Dis- before district nine. It was kind of like district nine. And then the studio saw that and was like, could you make this into a movie? So he expanded yeah, that. So he, I, I think there's a lot of shorts on YouTube of, of people who have an affinity with, uh, special effects and yeah. filming and and who might not have an idea for a full movie but they just have a premise but it's so yeah so it was more of a tech demo um yeah you know that he was doing kind of but like then his sense of humor kind of got picked up inside of you know and so he started to develop i think in a kind of autorship but what's really fascinating about um this uh, not he, with his this, stuff got a little watered down later it did so with Elysium. The o- I just yeah with Oat Studios though I kind of like Elysium I, I can I can go into why I think all of his films are actually kind of cool but um, with this Oat Studios what he wants to do is like a hundred or maybe not a hundred but like a dozen shorts every year uh, yeah. and then like the, depending on how the public responds to them on the internet and this is really interesting to think about in terms of contemporary culture he'll develop some further into feature films and so. The I idea. think it's a great idea. And, and then, I think, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. then also release the films through his studio on potentially on Steam, I was reading, like, or mm-hmm. through something like Steam, which is a video game uh, distribution uh, thing, uh, independent thing. So he'd, he'd be have owned the whole production workflow yeah, all yeah. the way through to distribution, but, but then also release all the files that went into making the films, which I think is like, reminds me of Corey Archangel, who used to do that with his work, right? Like, you bought the work, you also got all the production files. But he has this idea that like that the audience will remix and retell the story hmm. which i just wanted to get to that because yeah, as, a, as an expression of I think as an auteur it's really positive uh, 
it, it's a very positive attitude where it seems the movie industry and everybody's very scared of the future even though they make sci-fi movies but <laughs> now we have to preserve our models we have to preserve mm -hmm. the original way we watch cinema we have to preserve authorship we have to protect our IP and yeah. everything yeah so he's taking yeah it's the opposite I was just kind of I was a little surprised like I read this story earlier this week and I was just like what so why would some, what it, I don't I, know I just, think it's I think one theme that this uh, shows me, or the way I feel about that, is that I, when the internet arrived, I, I thought this is going to change everything. This is going to change filmmaking. This is going to change cities, the way mm -hmm. we live. We're, we're going to live decentralized. And then the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, I was like, well, that didn't happen. Actually, well, yeah. movies became more institutional. But now I'm thinking, I'm just being impatient. Give it another 20 years, and yeah. more people like Neil Blomkamp will come up. More people are going to move outside of major cities. And just give it a little bit of time, because we're early adapters, so we're already like, yeah, the internet is here, but a lot of people are just getting used to radical distribution. Yeah, it's true. Like, so there's always that first stone, and people are like, what it, you know, this is how it's going to be. It's like a crazy idea. And then, like, it doesn't happen. And then everyone's like, uh. And then it, it's really yeah. uh, Gartner's hype cycle kind of uh, in I, I want to I uh, bring in another science fiction speculative thing. Mm -hmm. I watched a talk by Rem Kohlhaas, the, the architect, yeah, yeah. about uh, the countryside. So he's fascinated what is happening to the rural part of the world because architecture theory is all about what are we going to do with cities what are cities going to be like in the future how are we going to deal with transportation and supplies mm -hmm. when you have cities of more than 20 million people and he's he's like there's no architecture theory about the countryside mm -hmm. and one of the things that showed up in his research is that the countryside is more digitized and more technologically forward than the cities because the there's hardly any people so you can mechanize it big parts of agriculture are so high tech that they're much more futuristic than any city because to change a city you would have to move so many people and you mm -hmm. have to I, I see it here in new york they're trying to get a right. fiber optic internet into the city and it's taking forever yeah because it's such a huge uh, difficult structure but then the, the countryside he showed um architectural photos of server farms that and and like tesla's gigafactory and that's the countryside now it's not anymore like a farmer with a with a little donkey and he's, mm. he's growing uh, two meters of of produce now it's like okay we a, a server farm in norway because it's cold there and, yeah. and architecturally it's very interesting and futuristic because these buildings hardly have humans in them so it's very um, scary though because like um, you take any time driving around the suburbs and you realize like a lot of that architecture is disposable and so like mini malls will just become empty because there's a new newer mall like down the road I don't know I experienced this when yeah, I was living it, in Syracuse. it goes back to our Amazon episode as well like mm. that that has such a huge impact on architecture if, if people don't go to shops anymore but it also has an impact on like ecology because you end up tearing down a lot of forests to spread everything out well we're just counting down to to oblivion so that, that's already a given <laughs> right that's a given well yeah this <laughs> yeah. week especially with the paris accord stuff but um yeah no problem there yeah no, no <laughs> worries no it. worries no worries yeah it's inevitable yeah. well we'll eventually cross that's going to be interesting for sci-fi actually when we cross the inevitable path you know toward um there's a sci-fi movie coming out later this year i forgot the w name for it yet again but it's about um, a post-climate, like uh, post-apocalypse, mm. post-climate kind of future. 
So I always like, thought that Mad Max really nailed the original Mad Max really nailed our the, imagination of what a post-capitalist world would look like. The original was like amazing. The new one was great too. Uh, in, yeah. in fact, it was al- almost. But but the idea that without capitalism is basically barbaric times with a little bit of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Or the technology is just this archaeology, you know, like you 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 make do, you make it do other things. I was at an MFA show, it's kind of funny here in Norway and this this post-apocalypse aesthetic is definitely something that I keep seeing, but one student had like this video But that didn't exist before Mad Max. That's my point. It, it, like some of these things seem really obvious now. Yeah. But someone came up with it. It's funny though. This student like made all these clothes and sculptures out of like stuff he found on the streets in the city, and it was like so. There's like a jacket was made out of like mesh and like street signs, and, stuff. and it kind of it kind of felt um, it kind of felt modern in a way. Like that that's that's kind of where we are now. We've accepted that this is going to happen, and so yeah. You know, now, yeah, now I think like, Isa Genskin, the the artist, uses a lot of that sort of debris or trash contemporary yeah. trash as clothing and yeah and i guess you know we're a few we're over a decade into sort of unmonumental sculpture like that sculpture shouldn't be glossy it's like more uh you know just a reconfiguration of the of our waste <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but uh yeah. i don't know where i'm going with this except to say that like you know we talked yeah, about we the past we haven't spoken about the futurists eh? Well, I'm just, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get to is the future. And, um, you know, like what I feel is an, like, this is, I talk, I bring this up at every opportunity when sci-fi comes up. It's like, where are the positive voices? Where are the positive speculations on well, the future? How do you feel about the future? I feel really positive about it. Um, okay. In the face of, you know, I because I think that I, what I know from branding, this is going to like be a bit of a weird argument, but like what I know from capitalism and branding and working in product design is that, um for there to be for you to for companies to position themselves competitively there needs to be an antithesis to them right so there first needs to be evil for mm. there to be good i think uh, politicians do the same thing they say we're going to die you have to be scared and then hey i got a solution exactly exactly so if we could just like hurry up with the problem i always say like then then we could like start like start the work of building the future unfortunately that's just kind of how we work like you mentioned it earlier right the struggle needs to be visible for us to like overcome it but i think the struggle is now like incredibly visible and you know the paris accord just you know i know you say it's not political but it's a good example of just like the the whole world came together like even north korea signed this thing right (laughs) Uh, i think every country except syria and nicaragua Nicaragua. yeah so nicaragua (laughs) didn't join because they thought it wasn't going far enough exactly so basically only syria and syria is like yeah in a a difficult situation Syria's not in the best shape right yeah (laughs) not really yeah in a position (laughs) to vote on that they're like oh yeah we already have that future it's uh right here we're all dying (laughs) so you know, I, even with America pulling out, I still think it's a very hopeful thing. And in fact, I think... Yeah, even with corporate America trying to get America to be in. I know, it's crazy how like certain states yeah. are are in on but it. But this is not a political podcast. Well, this, this isn't... I don't think this is a political issue. I think this is like about, you know, what we're talking about here. This is, is like, about like cleaning up your room or cleaning up after yourself. But hasn't sci-fi always been about the future of the planet, right? Like it's... Like it's well, never- yeah, Dune is great. It's really an ecological saga about a, a planet with very scarce resources that gets destroyed for it. And, mm-hmm. and so we're in this moment where sci-fi is really, we're really on the verge of like every speculation from sci-fi is actually happening right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, this is, like maybe. But Idiocracy is the scariest one. You should watch it. It, it was made 10 years ago, and you're like, damn. Do you think our parents this felt this way? Future. I mean, I'm not sure if my parents felt this way. I should probably give my mom a call and be like, hey, were you uh, like worried about the end of the world when you were my, and you're Oh, I, I talked to that about my, with my parents and they're like, yeah, we were so afraid of acid rain and the ozone layer and we fixed that. That's right. There was that, um, and there was that book. What was it like? Um, win, uh, Eternal Winter? No, what was it? There were like, a, there were a bunch of things that came out in our parents' Well, that's, it's an interesting problem. The, the problem of extrapolation. Silence, and Silence. There's a, yeah, sorry. There's a movie, a book called The Rational Optimist. Did mm-hmm. you read it? No. No. But the premise of the book is that optimists are always considered naive and kind of dumb. Mm, that's and me. that <laughs> people give a lot more credit intellectually to uh, pessimists. Mm-hmm. They think that's more credible. And it, there are examples where they thought they extrapolated in Paris, there were more and more horses in the 1900s, early 1900s. And I said, well, if, if the population keeps increasing, we'll be, uh, there will be horse manure about knee-high all over Paris. They calculated that. Like, okay, population is growing. We're going to have that many mm-hmm. horses. Nobody anticipated that cars would come. Right. So when you extrapolate the future, yeah, well, uh, a lot of people it doesn't the ni- always work. In the 1960s, they, uh, I, like, m- you know, the utopic modernism failed because they started to make calculations that they were going to run out of food by by now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, like, like, oh, if we if we can't have food for 2 billion people. No yeah, way. so they're like, ooh, we better like, uh, we can't keep talking about how we're going to, you know, just build our way. Like, the capitalism is going to like build its way to this utopia because we mm-hmm. already know that we're going to run out of food. Now, of course, we didn't run out of food, but we're, there are parts of the world that where food is unevenly distributed and they are, the, you know, we're back in that situation. It's so depressing. I, I think find. the most, did any sci-fi book predict food deserts the way they exist in the the u.s where produce is not available and you can only get mcnuggets right like we talked about previously yeah like no one no one predicted that it would just be about like yeah social sociology and power that like oh yeah we'll just like isolate these people over there and like take away their jobs uh or <laughs> and, <laughs> and then feed them fast food yeah no one that was, yeah <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, it's, the, the yeah, present is always, if, if, it's always if, worse uh, than fiction. I'm getting a little bit political this episode, but I, mm. I wonder if Republicans actively defunded education to get more votes. I mean, in general, that's... They're like, the, okay, if people are dumber, we can yeah, the neo, feed that, them that, That's kind of the neoliberal policy, right? Like, you know, you want to undermine... The working class this so it's not even let's not even talk about neoliberalism like marx would say like if we go all the way back to like the last time there was like a major crisis of like you know which which path are we going to choose capitalism or communism and you know what marx kind of presumed was that like capital itself and the capitalist or in in the chair of power you know is always going to seek to undermine labor because all profit comes from like doing that right like it's literally so, just... but you're saying that the upper class has an incentive to keep the middle and lower class uneducated well it's like i said earlier about like people cared about the quality of food not the quality of workers rights uh you know yeah I, I do think that if we move towards a, a mechanized knowledge society you can't function without higher education for most people but right now it's what what digital culture has given us is like a kind of digital feudalism right where there are a few big tech companies right that are yeah. are larger than governments in terms of the number of citizens that they control like facebook is what like over a billion users 
right? So I think they're almost at two billion. Yeah, like one and a half. So larger than China in terms of its governance, right? If, yeah. if and and they like they scrape or like collect taxes in the form of like eyeballs for advertising revenue from those mm-hmm. like citizens. Um, and then they ask them to do labor for them. The labor that they do, that we all do for free on Facebook is we like things. Sharing content. Share content. Yeah, we create the platform. Or even write, write no, they, they don't want us to share external content. They want us to write original content. For, well, yeah, for and certainly, yeah, then there's companies like Medium that want us to do that, and then everyone will subscribe. But, like, ba- basically, as a digital worker, you're, you're always asked to produce for free. And... You know, it's funny because that was originally a utopian thought, which which is like free freedom of expression, free expression. But what happened like was all Wikipedia. these Wikipedia. Yeah, and like at the and the state wasn't involved, and that was great. It's because it was like all about a collective, like global village. You know, to use like Marshall McLuhan's terms. But then, like, and as it always happens, a few people are like, "Well, what if I owned this whole thing?" So they're the the biggest sci-fi artists. They they do the biggest what if. What, yeah, I mean, of course, like, and I They're mean, it's not auteurs. like it's not like these things weren't predicted, like nineteen eighty four, like Orwell and stuff like that, right? It's not like sci fi mm-hmm. hasn't written about these things, but we allow it to come true over and over again. And I'm, I'm always, I'm never certain whether it's like outside, you know, I, like I think it's structural, like it's um, it's sociology, it's power, it's not just people watching sci fi movies being like, oh yeah, we should do that. I think it's sci fi is just kind of retelling the same archetype. Isn't there? I I never read Ayn Rand, but she is always quoted as the the inspiration for a lot of people who like libertarian uh, school of thought like you're saying oh yeah well yeah the empowerment I, of the individual and uh, reduction of regulation and the celebration guess, yeah. of power i guess of, my good point the, then though is like where is the liberal science fiction <laughs> like i remember watching yeah. i remember watching um well uh, star trek yeah, when, yeah, I guess it's Star Trek because I remember watching uh, Battlestar Galactica, and then like things got like incredibly religious near the, the end, and like I, I at first I was kind of in it, I don't know, it was this post dystopian play. I don't know, it had like liberal values embedded in it. I think a little bit like there was a lot of struggle, uh, or humanistic and humanistic, yeah. But it's like, empathic, like, yeah. But it devolved anyway. I, I'm always seeking like some sort of positivist would, liberal yeah I, I feel like the fiction. star trek original series and next generation had this uh humanistic values but like jj abrams like yeah all but the, the new star the new, trek, the new star trek is basically star wars it's like guy on a motorcycle like yeah it's on chick yeah. like at the bar like it's into <laughs> brawl and then does it in space anyway i i know i've talked about that before but I don't know. So are there, are there any... Um, it's a call to action. Maybe books? this is a call to action to our readers to like share. Could you share some positive... Um, but d- d- do you know of any yourself? No. Like, that's what I'm, like all I know about is like... Well, because I don't read... I read a lot of nonfiction. I know a lot of speculative design kind of projects. And um, and I can provide a lot of nonfiction reading on that. But I don't. I don't currently have a reading list, and it would be fun to share a reading list of like positive, uh, utopian, liberal uh, sci-fi. It, it's funny the uh, our takes, uh, our, um, our wishes from culture are so different, and it, it more and more like it, I I went into this podcast wanting to talk about science fiction and just talk about. <laughs> crazy ideas just like as spaced out as possible and yeah. thinking about it, it almost like a what is reality kind of discussion 
Oh and no, and I ruined it. I ruined it. No, no, you didn't ruin it. But it's just funny uh, how different we are. Like, uh, well, I really th- read sci-fi for escapism and and sort of a stretching out of the imagination. Like, how far can we take imagination? Yeah. You you thought of Mars creatures? Oh, they have green skin. No, actually, they're they're gas shaped. No, actually, they're a, a connecting gravity field uh, yeah. uh, consciousness. And, and just going further and further from reality. I've always and believed... you're like, hey, hey, can we go 10% to the left and make the world a better place? <laughs> I, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I've always believed that the... I think one of the reasons I'm not drawn to fiction... Well, for you, it seems culture is a means to an end. I'm just fascinated with what's right in front of me. I'm always curious, like, there's so many stories in reality that are untold. So much invisible. I always think that, you know, an artist's role is to make the invisible visible. And there's so much invisible out there that needs to be made visible and if we could just see it then you know like there's a great science fiction story like out there that isn't being told that you know someone's great idea for how we could live better i don't know that that's mm-hmm. kind of usually my position but i'm smacked yeah. in the face with dystopian stories over and over again it's funny our first meeting as a residency yeah i'm went, not so into dystopia either i'm just into the 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 power of the human brain and how far can you move away from what you know already right because that might allow us to see something from the outside no in. not that might allow like oh, just that just like, in itself is is a fun exercise hmm. you're like the abstract expressionist then you're really like um yeah you know you're you want to you're like kadinsky said like you know i want to escape my uh what it was what does he say i wanted to escape he wanted to escape representational kind of form uh, when he was, you know, of course, like all of the expressions did, they wanted to like evoke something that wasn't grounded in reality. But they, they wanted... still had a, a lot of uh, dreams of creating a utopian society out of that. Yeah, they did. It, was, and it came out of the Enlightenment, which is we could learn our way to some kind of uh, alter yeah. or uh, like higher consciousness. I mean, yeah, yeah. Mine, mine is my vision is more nihilistic, where I really feel like we're slowly moving to. Uh, doom and extinction and then just have like, fun in let's the meantime ha- let's have a, a dance party basically like yeah. show, show me your moves like <laughs> invent something <laughs> yeah. it's so weird because yeah. i was out in the fjord for like our first meeting we went out to like one of these little islands in the fjord outside oslo really scenic and we're like sitting there on like a little picnic table on this like you know thousand year old r- glacial rock looking out over the water and then, you know, we're, we're sharing a picnic and then all of a sudden you hear the sound of bees like <laughs> and flying overhead is a drone. <laughs> and then it like and it flies back and it was just like, there's your future. That's your like, God, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. In the middle of nowhere. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, well, it sounds like we should. You just mentioned the fjords. You made a, some sound recordings there. I did, yeah. Uh, so I thought, you know, Norway is really a beautiful place. Oslo, where I am, is like is strategically built at the, you know, the the I don't know if it's the birth or the end. Anyway, at the sort of the in at the very end of this fjord, and if you can go all the way out into it on a ferry, um, and there are little communities kind of scattered across the ro- you know rocky outcroppings of the fjord. Um, and so I took a little ferry around. It's, it's uh, the homeland of the myth- misanthropists. Yeah, they have like a ferry that's like a subway here, though. Anyway, um, and so I, I, I took a, I took some audio of that. And it's like of the ferry, though, which sounds quite at times like 
almost like a it does sound like a sci-fi movie like it sounds like a dinosaur creaking and like <laughs> like spurting and stuff so i thought it was appropriate for today's theme yeah so uh let's end off with the call to action please people make some field recordings don't think about it if you live in a place that we don't live it already sounds different so it's please true just, record. just listen yeah. i mean every time i do it when i just listen to a place i'm like whoa it's I'm, fun huh? yeah 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 so um send in your field recordings thank you for listening and let's listen to jeremy's recording of the fjords of Norway. thanks everyone bye, bye.